You're listening to a sermon originally recorded by Schweitzer United Methodist Church in Springfield, Missouri. Check us out online at sumc.co. And if this sermon blessed you, be sure to share it with someone else. Thank you so much for listening. Now, on to the message. As we are in the season of Lent, heading towards Easter, as you can see, we're going places that Jesus went. Uh, Last week, we went with Jesus to the desert. This week, we're going to go with Jesus to the wedding. We're going to start right in the scripture with John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And we're reading uh, in the Common English Bible. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother said to him, They don't have any wine. Jesus replied, Woman, what does that have to do with me? My time has not yet come. His mother told the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby were six stone water jars used for the Jewish cleansing ritual, each able to hold about 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some from them and take it to the head waiter, and they did. The head waiter, by the way, uh, is called the master of the feast in other translations. Uh, today, it'd be like a bartender. He was in control of the, of the wine distribution. So the head waiter, or bartender, tasted the wine, that had be- or tasted the water that had become wine. He didn't know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The head waiter called the groom and said, everyone serves the good wine first. They bring out the second-rate wine only when the guests are drinking freely. You kept the good wine until now. This was the first miraculous sign that Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. He revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So let's start here. For the next two or three minutes, I want you to become like a child. I want you to close your eyes, listen to my voice, and use your imagination. Follow along with me, okay? I'll tell you when you can open. I want you to forget everything you know about Jesus. Forget everything you know about Christianity, the whole nine yards. Imagine that a man named John the Baptist is your teacher. You've been with John the Baptist out in the wilderness, eating wild locusts and honey for food, wearing clothes made of camel's hair. You've been listening to him preach and teach about a baptism of repentance. You and many others recognize this man, John, as a great prophet. But he's been telling you that there's someone much greater than him who's coming, and he's coming soon. One day as you're with John, another man walks by known as Jesus of Nazareth. And your leader, John, says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the one who I've been telling you about, the chosen one of God, the Messiah we've all been waiting for. You think to yourself, the Messiah? Filled with curiosity, you leave your teacher immediately and you follow after this Jesus. Upon meeting him, He welcomes you in almost as if he knows you or he's been expecting you. But you don't know anything about him other than what John has told you. Your mind is filled with questions about this mysterious person. What's he like? What's he about? What does he want to do with me? What does he expect of me? Will he really save the world? 
How would he even do that? You realize he's different than anyone you've ever met. There's something extraordinary about him that you just can't put your finger on. The way he carries himself is as intimidating as it is welcoming. What a character. You're fixed on his every move. You're overwhelmingly curious. You're uncertain. You're excited. You're tense. You're anxious, wondering what's next? Where are we going to go? What are we going to do? What's he going to say? And the first thing Jesus says is, do you like steak or fish? I'm sorry, what? Well, I, I'm filling out your RSVP to this wedding we're invited to, and they needed to know whether you'd prefer steak or fish. Uh, I, I, I guess I'll take the fish. Okay, great. Get dressed, boys. It's time to party, says Jesus. Wait, really? You mean you don't, you don't want to do like a Bible study or something? Nope. We've got a wedding to go to. Time to celebrate. So taken aback, surprised but willing, you do what he says. But when you get to the wedding, you're not sure how to act. You're nervous. Should I accept the wine they offered me? Jesus right here. Should I be enjoying myself? What will he think of me if I do? What will he think of me if I don't? So caught up in your own head, wondering and worrying about how to act in front of Jesus, about an hour goes by before you notice that he's not even paying attention to you. In fact, he is the life of the party. Laughing, eating, dancing, drinking. So you loosen up a bit. You start enjoying him for the first time since you've met him. And just as you start to wonder, once again, can this really be the one sent from God to save the world from sin? You witness the miracle that saves the party. 150 gallons of water turned into the finest wine on earth in an instant. The celebration continues. The answer is yes. He is the Messiah. I no longer doubt. His message is joy. Oh, how I can't wait to see where he takes me next. Open your eyes. In that time of uh, an imaginary narrative, it may or may not be completely true. What, what happened to your perception of Jesus? What happened to the image that you have of Jesus in your mind? You know, for us, I think this story is, is easy to overlook because it's one among dozens, if not hundreds, of stories that we read in Scripture about Jesus. It's just one of many. We've all heard it. We've all talked about it. He turned water into wine. He went to a wedding. Okay? What you got to understand is to John, the writer of this gospel, and Jesus' disciples who were with him, this was not one event among many. This was not one miracle among many. This was the first. This is the first glimpse that they got into the person of Jesus Christ. His nature and his character, before they knew anything about him at all, what they looked into, what was revealed to them in the person of Jesus is that he's joyful, that he's playful, that he's lighthearted, that he's fun. What a relief. How does that change your perception of Jesus? You see, they realized here that he's not like the other religious leaders and teachers that they knew. 
It wasn't what they expected. He wasn't stuffy. He wasn't boring. He didn't avoid sinners because he was, they were sinners. Is this the Jesus that you imagine? See, to the disciples, but before Jesus went teaching and preaching in his ministry, before Jesus went and cleansed the temple, before he performed any miracles, before he healed anyone, before he calmed uh, the seas, before he walked on water, before he did any ministry at all, he took his disciples to a wedding. And the first miracle he performed was to keep the party going. Is this the Jesus that you know? Is this the Jesus that you personally walk with? And is this the Jesus that you proclaim and share with others? See, this event puts everything else that Jesus did into its proper perspective. This was first. I'll be honest that often uh, the stuffy religious person inside of me (laughs) tends to imagine a a Jesus that's much more serious and therefore a God that's much more serious. But again, what's revealed in this story is that it is a God that steps into places of joy, a God that wants to have a good time, a God that multiplies joy as he shares lives with others. And if you don't remember, Jesus was often criticized for this type of behavior, for hanging with with sinners and tax collectors, being friends with them. He was called a glutton and a drunkard. Jesus, our own God, was called a glutton and a drunkard. He didn't care. See, what Jesus cared about was, was being in the lives of other people was sharing life with them, sharing joy with them, multiplying their joy. In a world that's all too familiar with pain and sorrow, do you experience Jesus this way? And if you're a Christian, does the world experience you in this way? Now my guess is that there are some in this room this morning who really need to hear this message, Um, this invitation to experience a God of joy and replenishment. To you, the wine has been gone for a while, and you're empty of any real and lasting joy. The illusion of perfection and happily ever after (laughs) has been interrupted by the, the real events of life. Your work, your family, your health, your hobbies, your achievements, you've just, you've realized, you've come to a point where they no longer do it for you. They no longer fill you up. And let me tell you this morning, that, that is a, that's a really good place to be. But on the other hand, there, there are some people here this morning um, who feel as if this message is irrelevant. And at the current moment, if you're one of these people, your cup is pretty full. Everything's going pretty well. Headed in the right direction. Don't have too many complaints. Maybe you're riding the tide of comfy living or the high of a new relationship or success in your career. Maybe you're living in the excitement or the anticipation of the next big thing. 
That's one that oh, I've been guilty of so many times. Especially in, in, I don't know if it gets any better, but in your youth, it's like just, just milestone after milestone of things that change. And you're in high school, and you can't wait to get to college. You're in college, and you can't wait until the weekend or, or your career. And then you get to your career, and you can't wait till your next vacation or the weekend again. You can't wait to get engaged, and then once you're engaged, you can't wait to get married, and you're just constantly looking towards the next big thing, never really experiencing the present moment. I get it. But you feel full enough. You look towards the next big thing to to just fill you up. And if this is you, if you're any of these things that I listed, your tendency, your, your tendency will be to simultaneously do two things, to feel two things. One, you'll feel as if God is good. And two, you'll feel as if you have no need for God right now. Oftentimes when we're in this position, we're, we're quick to even say with our lips, God is good, things are going great. But what's really happening is, if we're honest with ourselves, is we feel as if we don't really need God that much right now. We're less inclined to prayer. We're less inclined to to seek him out and to get on our knees and just beg for his grace and mercy. We're less inclined to be around others in fellowship. We're less inclined to attend worship. Those things, they happen simultaneously. And it's so important that in these times, if this is you, right, those things aren't career success and vacations and comfy living. Those aren't bad things. They're not inherently evil, okay? But it's important that in these times, when we don't lack much, that we deny ourselves the things that we want. The things that feed our soul with a false sense of joy It's important that we deny some of that. Things like social media, like TV, like food, like nice cars, like nice furniture, like sex potentially. Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 7, married couples uh, for a limited amount of time giving up sex in order to devote themselves to prayer. Now, if you were like me and you grew up uh, doing the whole Lent bit where you, you give something up for Lent and not really understanding what it means, all right? And I get it, uh, but this is what it's about. This is what Lent is about. It's about recognizing that our heart is too easily satisfied with the wine of this world. And to keep ourselves from being deceived into this cheap drunkenness that the world offers us, which is empty of the real spirit, we cut ourselves off. We say, bartender, no thank you. That's why that's so important, because in doing so, by making ourselves empty, we begin to think clearly again. We begin to make space in our life for the Jesus juice, the good stuff, that joy, that grace, that love that's just perfect and never-ending and everlasting. That's what Lent is about. See, because what we know is that the man-made wine always runs out. Always. 
Never has been, it never will be enough, ever. See, it's not that these things are evil, like I said, it's that they, they simply aren't the real source of joy. They're a means to it. They're a means to joy, or they can be. And as long as we treat them like they're the real source of joy, they will keep us from God, who is the only true source of joy. Now, Kayla and I, uh, Kayla's my wife, we got married uh, not quite two years ago. We had a year and a half long engagement, like miserable, uh, waiting that long to get married. But as you can imagine, especially with how weddings are today, a lot of preparation went into that. Um, and you know, you just, you want the perfect day, and it's just how it is, but the day never goes perfectly. And our day had, had plenty of uh, minor hiccups, along with one huge one. There was a, all right, so, so the van driver, the limo driver, got, came and picked up the groomsmen and me from the hotel to take us to Jordan Valley Park to get pictures. And he was going to get the guys first and then the girls. He dropped us off at Jordan Valley, and as we're stepping off the van, I looked at the sky, and I was like, man, looks like it's going to rain. It's ominous. And we all got off the van, and 10 seconds after he drove away, like torrential downpour. I can't even describe, I've never been in the midst of a rain so powerful, and it lasted for 30 minutes, and there's no shelter. Go to Jordan Valley Park, there is literally nothing but trees. So we stood under the trees, which lasted like two minutes until the leaves started just dumping on us, and we're just stuck. So we're in our tuxedos, like five of us, even our, our camera lady is just has an umbrella over her camera, and we're getting soaked. Luckily, the bride and, and the bridesmaids weren't there. Um, but it was a disaster. My, my groomsmen, we were, uh, we were blow-drying our tuxedos when we got back to the hotel so that we could take pictures. And, um, and then, you know, once we got to the actual uh, ceremony, we had to decide. It was supposed to be outside. I and mean, there was this whole, like, just very stressful decision about whether to move it inside or outside, blah, blah, blah. And in, in the midst of all of this, uh, there was this moment prior to the ceremony where uh, Kayla and I prayed with two of our closest friends in Christ. And it's my favorite picture of our wedding is here. <clears throat> we held hands and we prayed with, with this Mark and his wife. And, uh, you know, we didn't pray that God would take the rain away or manipulate the weather just in order for us to enjoy the wedding, but we prayed that God would become the source of our joy in that day. This prayer was so powerful as we reminded ourselves that it was, it was only God, it was only the, our awareness of him in the presence of the celebratory moment that would really make the night worth it. And God answered this prayer from that moment on. I think Kayla would agree, it was probably one of the best nights of our lives. Uh, and it wasn't because it stopped raining. Or <laughs> it's because God was there. What do you turn to for joy? You see, Mary, Jesus' mother, recognizes the emptiness at the wedding, and she turns to Jesus. Now, notice that she didn't know how Jesus was going to respond. And given that this was his first miracle, she may not have even known how he could have responded. She just turned to him. She just told him the problem, that's it, with an assumption that he would fix it. He doesn't let her down. There's something about just learning to turn to God 
with everything without expecting him to do one particular thing. I know uh, this last week, I was in uh, some prayer and conversation with a friend. And as I was praying, I was wrestling with uh, this burden that I'd been feeling over months. Um, <clears throat> and I won't get into the details, but I'd really just been lacking joy in my life, honestly. I know spiritual life can be really hard at times and very burdensome. And uh, it's not supposed to be, but, but it can be. <clears throat> and in prayer, I heard God give me this word, and it was just, abide in me. Relax. See, this burden I'd been carrying, what I'd been going, although I'd been going to God for joy, I'd been going to him, asking him for a specific solution to give me joy. Does that make sense? And he said, look, only I can give you joy. Just be happy with me. That's it. Abide in me and let me deal with the rest. And since Wednesday, I, can't, I cannot even describe to you since that moment how much of a burden has been lifted off me. And I've just been joyful and I've been light. Carefree is a great way to describe it. Do you believe that all you need is Jesus? That no matter how he fixes the situation, that he'll give you himself and that that alone is enough? Now the... Uh, the text that we're reading this morning has a lot more going on in it, okay? A lot of rich, rich symbolism in it. And as some of you might know, the, the PSG, uh, the Pray, Study, Grow that you would get every week, writers from our church would send it out, is no longer happening. We've replaced it with something called the Seedbed Daily Text. And uh, a few weeks ago, I was reading the Seedbed Daily Text. This is really, really good stuff. Like, if you guys want a good five-minute daily devotional, sign up for this. I think you can do it on your connection card or online uh, on our website, but uh, it sends you something weekly, and, and it was on this very text, and J.D. Walt, the writer, he was talking about the symbolism in John 2, and as we read it, it's amazing that the very first words are on the third day. There's really no uh, particular reason why John would have said on the third day. In every other, the beginning of every other paragraph in his letter is on the next day, on the next day, on the next day. And he gets to this, and it's on the third day. It's a symbolism there. Is it possibly pointing to the resurrection? Then when his mother comes to him and, and gives him the problem, Jesus' response is, what does this have to do with me? My time has not yet come. You go on in John's gospel, and there's a repeated phrase, my time has not yet come, until finally... Near the end, as Jesus rides into Jerusalem for the last time, it says, the time for the Son of Man to be glorified has come. This is pointing towards something much greater. The stone water jars that were filled, it says they were used for Jewish uh, cleansing rituals, for purity rituals, right? Well, instead they're used for containers of wine. Might this be that the way in which we are become pure and holy through the law of Moses is now through the blood of Christ? Replaced, transformed miraculously by our God. We look at the fact that this is at a wedding feast. 
Now, weddings are, marriage is rich symbolism that we see all throughout Scripture, Old and New Testament. Jesus is the groom. The church is his bride. And one day, we will eventually consummate this engagement that we're in. There will one day be a wedding feast like this one. And he will save the best wine for last. Might this be pointing to the type of wine that is offered to us in this communion with God, this eternal, everlasting communion full of joy that we cannot even fathom? You see, the gift is twofold. That no matter what we experience in this life, there is always hope in the next. There is always hope in the next life, no matter what we experience. But secondly, and even more exciting, is that we don't have to wait. It's available to you right now, this very moment. The invitation to begin experiencing Jesus is on the table now. This is what Jesus meant when he sat at the table with his disciples. He took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take and eat. Then giving thanks, he took the cup. And he said, this is the blood of my new covenant, which is poured out for you, for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you, and do this in remembrance of me. As we partake in communion, This isn't just symbolism. We believe that by drinking of Jesus' blood and eating of his flesh, we are literally, literally receiving God's grace in the moment. His sustenance. Jesus is literally filling us with himself. This is what I envisioned this morning. When I prayed over the church, um, I was at my house this morning early, and uh, God just, he just gave me this, this vision of wine pouring out of the ceilings of this place. His Holy Spirit just pouring out of the ceilings of this place. And everyone just, just swimming in it and drowning it and drinking of it. And this, this joy. And this is, this is what every one of us can have and receive here this morning. Bob, if you'd come up and the band's going to come up. Bob's going to pray over communion, since I'm not allowed to. (laughs) But the table is set. The invitation is here. The invitation is to drink. I want to invite you just to stand with me. And uh, if you want to put your hands out like this. uh, Jesus, you are the new wine. And uh, vessels can hold this wine, whether it's a jar of water, whether it's a cup, whether it's a human person. And so we pray right now 
that you would pour out your spirit truly on this place, in this place, on these gifts of bread and wine, that they would be for us your body, that they would be for us your blood. Help us to taste you today. Help us to imbibe. Help us to come to the Jesus juice and be drunk on your spirit, intoxicated in your love, renewed and basking and dancing in your grace. Come, Holy Spirit. Amen. Our servers are welcome to come, and you're going to be invited to come. And when you come and receive, you come.